everybody. Welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast, episode 61, where we have Will Engel with us today. He is a strategist from the Open Education Initiatives at the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. This is a great episode. We sit down and talk about libraries and books and all that fun stuff. Sit back, relax, enjoy. We'll see you on the other side. One. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast, where we love to center our practice and our pedagogy around what really matters. And we're looking to build a guild of educators and all the peripherals that go with that, dedicated in designing a difference in student experience. It takes me a long time to go through that paragraph, believe me or not. And I've said it, you know, a number of times now. You think I'd have it memorized, but. Anyway, uh, thank you for taking the time, Will. Uh, everybody, this is Will Engel, and uh, I won't go any further. I will let you, Will, tell us who you are, where you're from, and kind of what's top of mind for you right now. Sure. Hi. Hi, everybody. My name is Will Engel. I'm a strategist at um, UBC's Center for Teaching, Learning, and Technology. So we're a unit on campus that um, has its hands in both educational technology, but um, also sort of good pedagogy as well. Um, so we do a lot of different things and I'm, I'm particularly a strategist for open education initiatives. So I work with instructors on one level um, who may be wanting to use open resources or create open resources or open their teaching um, in some sort of way, whether it's embracing like an open pedagogy assignment um, or just, just doing open practices of sharing their work that they're doing. Um, on another end, I work on a, a number of sort of university broad initiatives um, that have to do with open. Um, so I've worked on everything from UBC's initial uh, MOOC offerings through Coursera and then edX um, to uh, working on some grant programs these days around um, grants for the creation and integration of open resources. Well, that's a mouthful. I thought I yeah, had a paragraph sorry. to go through. Now I have to admit when I, when I went and looked up your, your profile online, I'm like strategist. And then my mind instantly goes to Will in a dark room in a basement, big table map on the table. And he's pushing all these things around uh, that, that can't be what you're doing. But I, I'm curious to know, like when you, when you, when you uh, introduce yourself as a strategist, like what, what does that mean? It's a, it's a good question. And I, I colleagues make fun of my title all the time because um, in some ways it doesn't mean a lot. In some ways, it's sort of a catch all um, phrase in that that I'm what I would call a generalist. So I can work sort of broadly across different areas. Um, so I know a little about a lot. So I can talk about like how open how technologies can support openness or or how um, how to integrate openness into pedagogy. Um, so uh, and then I can sort of think about like how what are the things that the university should be doing to, to sort of support this? Um, so in my unit, we have a number of different strategists and um, they tend to be aligned with university priorities. So um, we have a strategist for indigenous, indigenous initiatives um, and then a strategist around teaching and learning in general um, and then myself as well. So. Wow. That's great. That's great. So how did you get into this field? Like let's go back and, to grade 11 and grade 12 and you're in high school going, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I know I'm going to be a strategist. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, no. Yeah. There's never a straight, straight road. It was a very windy road um, around, but uh, probably the big, um, the big moment is I was interested in library science. So um, I had worked for a number of years and, and uh, sort of in the, the non-education sector. So I worked um, eventually for a nonprofit organization um, that had a grant that was funded from the National Library of Medicine. So we have librarians on staff and what they were doing was was trying to collect information and create a database of information on a specific health related topic. 
um, at that time. And, and it was just a neat idea of, of like all this information's out there and we should really figure out how to lower the access barriers to that information. Um, and from there, I went to library school at UBC and went to, to SLACE. Um, and then uh, was, was as sort of a, a library position, was hired initially to be a wiki gardener. Um, so UBC has a campus-wide um, campus wiki platform, and I was brought in as a library student to try to create some, some organization out of that, which was just a fantastic job. And from there, um, yeah, just kind of stayed in place and, and uh, um, you know, have been taking those values of the idea of how do we make information. And in this case, like, you know, information is really grounded on how do we allow people to contribute to the to the creation of information or knowledge. Um, and that really fits into to open education. So like in a lot of ways, I love my position. It's really well aligned with with my interests and I get to do a lot of varied and different things. That's so cool. So you're not the first person to talk to me about library school. So open that box for me a little bit. Like what does library school look like? Is it in a library? And they just go, okay, this is, this is a library. Uh, so I'll, I'll just give the, um, the warning that it's been a few years since I've been in library school, but, uh, um, yeah, at, at UBC was a, a great program. It was a mixture of what I would call very traditional library skills. So, um, you know, in some ways theory based of how do we organize information and how do we, um, you know, structure information and getting into the nitty grittiness of metadata and, and that piece. And then very other traditional library skills of like, how do we do, how do we work a reference desk and how do you do a reference interview? Um, things like that. But, but as you, so my year, my program was a two-year program. And as you sort of work your way through it, it kind of opens up and um, you get more um, leeway. So I, I did a lot more of the technology sides of things. Um, uh, like how do you, how do we structure like documents and things like that at sort of one end to, to working with open technologies and open tools at the other end. Um, so, so like, I think librarians end up in open education because there's a lot of people who are attracted to the idea of providing access, like mo mostly like libraries are really um, well-received places. And it's about like this sort of service idea of, of how do we, how do we sort of enable um, information to be broadly shared, whether it's at a public library, which is really, I think, one of the most amazing institutions in society to, to a research library at a university who, who are there to really work with their community and make sure that, that the people can access the information that they need. For sure. Has there been a lot of change in libraries over the years and since you've been in school? I mean, technology is probably going to be one of the biggest ones, but has there been any significant changes in libraries? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, libraries have, have you know, fantastically changed from like where we are the service providers of a space with physical resources. And if you want to use those resources, come to the space um, to really becoming a, a product of, of the Internet in some ways. And, and how do we leverage these communication technologies to provide people those resources? Um, so physical spaces have changed. There's a lot more things like research commons or learning commons where um, you're enabling collaboration or maybe providing the physical tools of so, um, doing things like recording studios or um, editing software that people can come and use, maybe access the tools they don't have, uh, but using the sort of connection to, to share journal articles or provide access to databases, um, things like that have become much more common. And, and these, oh, go ahead. I, I have to say that um, when I was in my master's, I love libraries, by the way. I, I miss going to the public library in my community. I, I don't know. I'm probably a nerd that way, but I just, I love books. I love the smell of books, the smell of pages, the 
tactileness of books. Like I have a Kindle. I probably have 150 books in my Kindle and that's not, I'm not trying to boast. I know it's probably not as much as most people, but I hardly read them because they're not in my hands. Right. I love libraries. I, I love going to libraries, but I got to be honest when I was doing my master's degree, Will, I was intimidated by the library because you walk in there and I mean, it's a whole different world, man. What, what intimidated you or what? Yeah, that's a good question. So it, one, not knowing what to do. Like, so I, I walk in there and I'm like, okay, so I got, I got a research paper to do, right. Or I'm working on my thesis and, you know, you kind of get exposed to different things as you go along, but you know, I'm now in my research mode and I'm like, I don't know what to do or how, how to do it. Like, and this is going to sound silly, but my, 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 my default experience is like, okay, well, go look up a card in the, in the card drawer, (laughs) you know, and I know there's probably none of those around anymore, but it's like, I I just get intimidated by it. The people there are fantastic. Like every library that I've been into, it's like, I don't know. Librarians are just, just special human, right. Where they just, they just want to help. And I've never run into a librarian that has been, you know, awful or anything. They've always gone their, their 10th mile to help me, but I don't know, man, I just walk in there and just get intimidated by space, the quiet, the books, the, what do I do? <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's something libraries um, recognize and struggle with a little bit. So, oh, so okay. they, they do try to um, make their spaces friendlier. And like we've gone um, in a lot of institutions away from the idea of like special searches to like just having a Google like federated search box um, that, that works like Google and you can get a lot of what you need. Um, just by typing it in rather than make you do the old Boolean searches and, and construct, um, you know, the, the very long search strings. Um, but but it's an interesting comment because I think about this a lot in terms of, of teaching and learning of this idea. Also, like in students coming in, having that same experience to a classroom that they might, um, particularly like if it's an unfamiliar experience, if, if they haven't um, been in a university classroom or a college classroom um, yeah, like there's a lot of that commonality of, of we're there to provide a service, but how do we, how do we lower those, those, I don't know, intimidation factor and, and barrier factor. Um, so, so I think in a lot of ways you get students, whether it's at the library in a classroom um, who you don't actually know that they might be facing these barriers or, you know, or needing that sort of onboarding or, or intro piece to it because they're not the ones that are going to come forward and say, you know, how, how, how do I do a search in this library? They'll, they'll come in and then look around and then they maybe leave and, and, uh, <laughs> you know, go to the website or, or something like that. So that was totally me. Yeah. That was totally like walk in and go, yeah, okay. I'll, I'm I'll figure this go. out somehow. I'll yeah. just, yeah, I'll go find somebody and, you know, pay them the the money to do the research for me, which I didn't do, but it was, it was pretty intimidating. And then, you know, to the library's credit at the, at the university I went to for my master's degree, they actually had a couple of librarians come into one of our classes and yeah, they spent probably three hours with us just walking through what to expect, what to do, and even just the right questions to ask. Um, they weren't telling us to be, you know, smarten up and stuff, but they're like, so if you're looking for something specific, be specific in your question. It sounds so foundational, right? But it was so helpful for me because I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So if I want to, I want to narrow down on something, I better keep my question narrow because I don't want to dump this question on your desk and then go, okay, no, help me. 
Right. And, and, and so from the other end in, in library school, we talk a lot about the reference interview and, and getting those broad questions. And then like, how do you have a conversation to, to really figure out what the sort of core of the question is and, and trying to help narrow it down. So. Oh, that's good. Um, I'm glad yeah. to hear that you guys are getting that training for rhinos <laughs> like me that come in and go, yeah, well, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not just you. It's it's as I say, like I don't, you know, most people when they're new to research or new to to the university, like they haven't spent a lot of time in libraries and might not know how they're arranged. And UBC has, I can't remember how many different libraries on campus, so they might not even know which library to go to specifically. So yeah, um, no kidding, right? And yeah, uh, yeah I, I've only been to UBC Library, the big one, maybe twice over the last couple of decades. Obviously, not once during COVID, right? But um, just because it's so far away from my house, but it's, uh, you know, going to a university library, it's just this whole other level of not just intimidation factor, but just impressive factor where there's, you just, you walk, I don't know, again, I'm a nerd and I'm giving this away more than I probably should, but I just, sometimes I just love walking the aisles and looking at books and, and I'll pull one off the, and I'm like, wow, this was printed back in 1908 and it's here on a shelf that somebody had to buy somebody had to catalog somebody had to place somebody has to take care of track you know all these things and it's like and and there's there has to have been somebody who's taken this book out right and anyway that's what i think about when i go into university yeah, and then and you know you're you're speaking to the the similar the, the right crowd because you know there's the physicality of books and stacks are just amazing and that sort of like history of the idea that these things have been here and they've been in society and like institutions like ubc which have these very old collections you know it's fantastic to walk around and look at those so what's what's the oldest book that ubc has do you know oh i don't <laughs> they have some they have some pretty <laughs> rare ones um I should, I don't, I can look this up, but, uh, um, yeah, they have some pretty, pretty amazing yeah. rare collections. I um, bet. So that's, that's wor- very cool. I worked at a, uh, um, at Woodward library, which is sort of the health sciences, um, branch library on campus. And one, one of the, the neat collections they had there, one of my favorite collections was they had, um, a fishing collection. Um, and it was from a bunch of professors back in the, I want to say I could have this all wrong, but back in the fifties who would go like on a, um, like fishing vacation every year and they would play poker and they would, the poker winnings would go to buy like books on fly fishing and, and that. And so no they created this like fly fishing collection or, or angling collection, <laughs> um, which is just great. It's just, you know, somewhere in there in the UBC library is this neat collection of that is um, hilarious. Yeah. It's almost like dead fish society or something like that, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So the, the one personal question then. So how do I, how do I sharpen my skills when the next time I go into a library, when we're allowed to go in again, if I'm, if I'm looking to do some research, how do I sharpen my skill to help you better? Uh, you know, I, I think, uh, don't be, don't hesitate to have a conversation with a librarian. That's, that's why they're there. Um, you know, and they're, they're skilled and trained, um, particularly in their own collections. So, um, that's my, my biggest piece of advice is don't hesitate to talk. And it sounds like you've already kind of gotten that, that thinking of like, how do I narrow down to what I'm actually trying to think about? Um, what is, what, what is actually my research? Um, right. So when you say specialist, special collections, are there within the university library, I'm, I'm assuming now that there are like, you would have a designated collection that you're associated with. Uh, and, and that really changes. So, so um, again, I'm, I'm not working at the UBC library, so I'm not entirely sure, but 
it used to be like you would be a reference librarian for a particular subject area, multiple subject area. So you might be the the um, health or the humanities librarian or the the like zoology or biology librarian. Um, and I think uh, and then that would be sort of your expertise and, and you would know like what are the journals and the databases um, and, and the physical collections in that area. Um, and I think these days uh, um, people are more generalists and they're spread out across more more subject areas. Um, so they're applying the same skills, but to different areas. And they generally have a very good understanding of, of again, what are those databases? What are the journals where you might be wanting to research? Um, how do you do this sort of specialized research that might be in a specific area? So like certain areas you might be doing more like lit reviews and like how, how do they help you structure like a, a search for a lit literature review? Nice. So I know as a tradesperson who used to do a lot of new construction, I would go into a building and I would just start deconstructing everything that I saw and go, oh, that's interesting. They did that. Oh, that, why did they do that that way? Do you ever find yourself doing that when you were going into a, a library that you didn't know? Very much. And, and a lot of, uh, yeah, absolutely. So I love visiting libraries as well. And for a while when I would travel, I would always make a point of stopping in to, to visit the local sort of public libraries and see how they're set up and, yeah, I, I love like, oh, that's a really great like feature or like, oh, that I, you know, why is, why did they have this like main area in such a depressing, like dark room, you know, like, <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. So, and particularly around, because I visit a lot of public libraries, particularly around like, you know, oh, it'd be great if they, we had these policies at my local library or, or, yeah. you, know, you know, this sort of space in my local library. So. No kidding. Do you have a favorite library? Uh, so, um, yeah, it, I have, I have several. So I did, as part of my library school, I did a, a practicum, um, in the Multnomah County library, which is Portland, Oregon. Um, and just really love that library system. Um, they do just an, a, just an amazing fan job of serving their community and, and, uh, having amazing branches and having amazing, um, staff and, and just doing really cool things. Like they were, um, because Portland's a very, um, I don't know city that attracts a lot of young um people like i think they just are open to to doing cool ideas like so they were doing podcasts you know a decade ago i want to say when i was in library school so um you know where they would just talk they would bring in speakers and talk about like if it was a writer or somebody in their staff and just talk about like how that works with the library i just always love their sort of like we're just gonna gonna do cool things and, and uh you know talk about our services that's so cool and we're on this library trail a bit, but that's, that's totally fine. I, I love it. But mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting how um, libraries integrate into the community and try to bring the community into the library. I think that's phenomenal. And I think that's needed. I think more people need to go check out your local library. So people listening, go check out your local library if you can. Um, even if it's just to go in and look around and say hi to people behind the desk. Cause you know, I don't think they've, they're always treated the most friendly manner, but uh, it's, it's just so interesting that they try to get the community to engage in a library. And I would imagine that goes all the way back to ancient times, right? Where there'd, there'd be the open forum or there'd be this, this building where people would just come and congregate for, for no other reason than to exchange ideas and information, right? And um, you see some libraries getting in trouble too, of pushing the boundaries a little too far, right? Right. Yeah. And it's a very hard, like, I think libraries always struggle with this of, you know, how do we, how do we have sort of a non-judgmental approach to, to the idea of, of um, providing our community with sort of the information and knowledge resources they need? Well, at the same time going, eh, some of these events that are being booked into our spaces, you know, often cause controversy and, and how do you create those policies? 
Ne? Yeah, and, and that's got to be a tricky line to walk, right? Because you're you're a public space, and you know you have a mandate to provide that space to the public. But yeah, there's obviously stuff that happens in the public that's not going to be in alignment with a lot of values that are current in that area, right? So, very cool. So, Will, what are you working on right now? What's top of mind for you right now? Yeah, so so uh, one of the big projects I'm working on is uh, UBC committed um, quite a substantial amount of money to to grants for creating open educational resources. So we just adjudicated our second cycle of that. Um, this this fund um, it's called the OER fund was created in fall of 2019. So we just went through our adjudication. Um, so very excited to see some new projects um, get announced shortly, um, and then get those sort of up and running. Um, very cool. So, so I know you yeah. can't give away with those projects yet because they haven't been announced yet. Yeah, but. unfortunately, we're we're still. Uh, yeah, they should be going out very very soon, if not in the next <laughs> day or so. No problem, no problem. But what yeah. are some what are some projects last year or the first year that you started this that uh, still are you know front and center for you? Yeah, so we we had a couple um, priorities that I thought were really great. So one of the priorities was looking at how do we um, create open assessment uh, tools or open assessment um, resources. So. Uh, right now, there's a big common um, thing across higher education where instructors are often asking their students um, to use a um, platform, often a textbook publishing platform. So they'll, they'll assign a textbook publishing platform and that platform will have a homework system integrated into it. Um, so in the old days, you would just buy a textbook um, and then the instructor would give you like your weekly quiz. Um, so uh, as things have become digital, uh, the textbook publishing companies have said, we can build those dig- those quizzes is right into the digital platform um, and then we'll charge students money for that. So um, the idea is like, maybe, you know, tuition should really cover assessment and instruction. So, so why are students having to pay for assessment? Um, so looking at ways, how can open resources um, be sort of supported to, to support assessment activities? It's um, cool. Has it, has it made a, an impact, significant impact? Uh, you know, we have a few projects coming out. So, so um, again, these projects just started in April, um, end of March, April, 2020. So they're still sort of in the development phase at this point. Um, but we had, so one of the cool projects is from an instructor um, named Agnes Dayan-Tromont, who teaches mechanical engineering. And she and, and several people of engineering have been creating a engineering um, open library problem set. So using a tool called WebWork. Oh, yeah. uh, which is used in math quite a bit, um, but there wasn't a lot of engineering questions in it. So really just authoring you know, hundreds of these engineering questions that can then be sort of aligned at different courses um, and then used in her own courses as well. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Is there much student uh, integration and creation with that stuff or is it pretty much just faculty? Uh, in, in the web work stuff, I believe, so definitely students are doing a, a lot of the work. Um, a lot of the, the UBC projects go, the funding goes to hiring students. Um, so, so more as just, uh, maybe students as workers, but there's other projects that are doing what I would call the students as sort of partners, um, where the students are maybe being asked as part of their class to, to generate the, the resources, um, for an assignment, um, Often that's called open pedagogy or an open assignment. So, so we do have those projects as, as well. Um, but a lot of the, the direct resource creation um, and the engineering projects, I, I think students are always welcome to create. Um, all, all of these problems kind of get created on GitHub or are shared on GitHub. Um, but I think specifically for that project, uh, 
yeah, it, it's more a project for students rather than students developing them. If that makes sense. Yeah. makes total sense. Makes total sense. Um, I imagine like everything that happens in higher ed, when there's a cultural shift, um, that there's, there's people who buy in right away and then there's people who will never, ever buy in. And then there's that, that middle adopter stage, right? Um, what's, what's the culture like at UBC? I know you can't speak for everybody and I know it's a big community, but what's it like? Yeah. So, so definitely just, just what you said, like UBC in my mind does an amazing work in, in open education. We can always be doing better, but, um, it really started with us having some amazing faculty who, who, who really, um, in some ways were just committed to making their teaching and learning open. Um, so even going back earlier to before the idea of open textbooks or OER really caught on, they were just putting all their courses on websites and using an open course and letting other people come in and um, see some of their materials or see their assignments or um, watch their lectures. They would often record their lectures. Um, so, so that kind of created this like, yeah, this is this is totally a thing at UBC, um, which inspired a lot of people. And then um, the sort of second thing that happened is that we have an amazing student government and the student government has really um, been advocating uh, for open for, for uh, a number of years. And students are able to open doors in a lot of ways that faculty or staff like myself can't open. Um, so, so they were instrumental in getting a lot of the policies created that support open at UBC. Um, so within the last few years, uh, we published a strategic plan for the university. We being the university published a 10 year strategic plan. And it's the first one that has mentioned open um, open educational resources directly in our, our strategic plan. Um, we've had language inserted into the um, tenure and promotion guidelines for um, educational leadership faculty um, that say like a good criteria is creating for creating a good criteria of educational leadership could be creating or sharing or contributing to open educational resources. Um, the creation of this fund. So all of this has really been in a lot of ways due to, to great leadership from our student society of, of saying, you know, this is important and, and uh, the university should should help us sort of set up these these policies and processes for making it happen. Yeah, no kidding. Student bodies are very powerful, right? And I mean, if you ever wanted to get close to your client, just go to a student association meeting, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, mercy. That's good. That's good. <laughs> And let me just also say BC campus has been just fundamental in, in creating, I would say, the provincial wide impetus for, for open and, and UBC has really benefit, benefited from that because it's, it's uh, you know, people at UBC see other institutions doing that and, and UBC always wants to, to um, be in the mix as well. So um, when you see other institutions within BC or, or abroad, but within BC particularly, um, you know, questions will come down. How are we doing, you know, compared to say KPU or BCIT or, or whatnot. Yeah. And that's, and that's good that there's that, I, I will call it a, a friendly competition when it comes to the open space. Not that we want to talk about the open space as being competitive per se, but it, it does, it does interest me that when one institution does something that a few others kind of look over and go, Oh, they kind of peek over the fence and go, uh-huh, I see that. And, and it's not like a, Oh, I want to beat that. Or I want to beat that that institution down. It's like, what are they doing that we can do here that will make our institution thrive even more? Right. Yeah. And absolutely. And in some ways it just becomes a thing. So like people will hear this institution is doing that. Does that exist at your institution? And it's, it's not even competitive. It's just like, this is a practice now. Yeah. Um, 
So. Oh, but I'm sure that when the VPs, uh, academics get in a closed room together, I bet you there's a little banter going on back and forth. I wouldn't doubt that at all. Right. But, uh, no, that's, that's very cool. Very cool. So, um, what, what have, what have you been absolutely convinced of lately? Uh, maybe because we've had this year called COVID reality. Um, but what, what have you become absolutely convinced of lately? It's a good question. Um, yeah. So, so in some ways, I think, um, what's really, I think there's going to, I'm pretty convinced that teaching and learning are going to change, you know, hugely after this. So I don't think that there's going to be putting the, the worms back in the can or the, the, whatever the metaphor is, <laughs> um, you know, beforehand, like we would work with instructors and a lot of instructors would, would use technology and that, but there was not, there was a huge part of the, you know, um, teaching learning community that just never used technology and they were just used to, to teaching how they've been teaching for, for years. And um, suddenly the entire world, you know, got used to using technology very rapidly. So it doesn't mean they're always using it great or they're always using the best technologies, but I think that sort of flexibility um, that technology has enabled is probably not going back. So, so, um, you know, I already hear instructors saying like, yeah, why can't I be offering my office hours on Zoom? Because it's it's a lot easier, and you know I don't want students to have to travel to campus just to meet with me for a half hour when I can meet with them on on Zoom. Things like that. Um, yeah. Do you think Do you think we'll see a change in the you know the two hundred plus student class? Uh probably not. <laughs> um, in terms of, I mean, I think we'll see that in that there'll be some flexible options. So it might be. Um, you know, you might be taking it in person or you might be taking it fully online and there'll be more chances to take it fully online or it might be, you know, you're coming up to campus one day a week and then taking the other parts of it online. So I think the technology will be used to help those 200 person classes. Uh, I think, I think, you know, generally capacity is a huge issue. Um, so it'd be nice to, it would be nice to scale those down for sure. But, but as long as there's interest in sort of current levels of, of, how the university is structured. I, I don't think those classes are, are going to get any smaller. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, for sure. Do you think any of this new technology will creep into uh, teacher certification education? Like, um, like that, the one year, year and a half certificate that people will get after their, their undergrad. Do you think any of this technology will creep into that? That's a good, good question. I'm not, I'm not, Sure. Um, I, so just, I'm not super familiar with that, that line. So I'd be curious what they're doing now around, around the use of teaching with technology. Um, yeah. I'm, I have a friend who, well, I have a bunch of friends in the K to 12 system, particularly in the, in the middle to senior grades, but, and, and, you know, like everywhere else, there's a range of people who can use the tech, right. From everyone from, you know, I barely use email to people who, you know, they, they shoot their own videos and do their own stuff. Right. But um, but I often wonder, like, it, it change in that system usually happens at the university level first, and then trickles down into the system after that, right? So I'm just I'm just curious if the universities are looking at incorporating not just the use of technology, but the pedagogical perspective on the technology, right? And uh, what, what's what's your thoughts on that with the pedagogical perspective on technology? Yeah. Well, and, and I would say that's where we need to be starting. I think technologies will come and go, but the, some of the functionalities, you know, will, will be the same. So it's not like we shouldn't really be teaching about necessarily a specific technology or specific. I mean, we can definitely be supporting as we're using those tools, but like 
we do need to have that pedagogical focus of, you know, how do we design a, a course that has a, say, a asynchronous or versus a synchronous, you know, what is the right balance there? Um, what are some, what are some techniques if we're using, say, some sort of video streaming, what are some techniques to make that engaging and, and um, you know, work with instructor presence to make it not feel like students are just watching a TV show and are isolated um, from each other and from the class. So, so like building in those sort of ideas, um, I think are really core. So to the use of technology. Um, yeah, so, so I do think that's where you'll see a lot of growth, um, you know, and, and like, how do we not, how do we use technology, but how do we, how do we teach when this technology makes different ways of teaching possible? So. Right. Right. Interesting. So talk to me a little bit. If I, if I'm starting a course, like I know I'm starting a course in the spring, in the spring term. So I'm going to start it up in May. So we're a couple months out. So it's not like I just got the contract today and I'm teaching tomorrow, um, <laughs> which we know it happens anyway. Right. Uh, so speak to me a little bit about that engagement piece, because uh, I do teach uh, a couple night classes and I, and I try to be engaging. Um, but what are some things that I can think about or, or maybe integrate into my course that will help that process? Um, so, so you're putting me on the spot for, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would throw this back to you as the instructor of, of what has been working or what hasn't right. been working for you. Um, yeah. Is that the, a question? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Okay. Let's, let's, let's do this here. That's good. Um, yeah. So what's been working is, I don't require their video on um, and I don't require their microphones on. In fact, if they're going to be in a noisy environment, I'd rather have their microphone off. So I use chat a ton um, and I'll ask a question and then just wait for people to, to respond. And, and I know typing takes longer than speaking, but I've, I've just made that conscious decision because of COVID and because of all that other surveillance garbage that we talked about before coming on air. Um, I, I just don't want people to feel that they have to turn their camera on when all this stuff's going on in the background. Right. Um, I want them to feel comfortable taking the course. And so I, I don't require that, but in the chat, I'll ask a question and then I'll wait, literally I'll count to 30 before I see an answer or no answer. And then I'll move on. Um, so it, that's kind of, that's probably the biggest thing that I'm doing. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think that's fantastic. First of all, let me just, I think it's fantastic that the idea that we don't require cameras on and we don't require um, necessarily um, yeah, even the mic on uh, if, if people aren't comfortable. Cause I think there is this whole, yeah, this whole area of, you know, who do like having a camera in your house is a different level of sitting in a classroom. It's a different, it, it shares more information than, than would be shared if you were in sort of a neutral, neutral space. Um, so giving students or giving learners that flexibility to, to um, engage sort of how they feel comfortable is a, a great approach. Um, I do know when you do those questions, though, and you hear, have that 30 seconds of silence, that can be really, I feel like when I've done that, it can be really hard. Um, oh, yeah, it's not easy, man, because you're sitting there and there's nothing going on. And there's not even the little indication that, you know, Tim Carson's typing. There's none of that. And I'm sitting there going, OK, I'm at 16, 17, 18, and no one's responded yet. And I'm thinking, is my, are my connections good? Like do people hear me, but yeah. So it's been, it's not been easy. <laughs> yeah. So, so in some of those, like, it might be like, you know, the idea of like getting engagement through like 
projects or activities via that streaming. So could you, could you give them a, like a challenge to work on and then come back and report? So actually stop the zoom or pause it and say, okay, go out and, you know, observe something in your area or think of, you know, research something or think about this. And then we'll meet back in five minutes and, and um, in the chat, share, share your thought or reflection on that. So that gives you know, students a little bit of time to, to um, pause from feeling like they're on, on camera or, or in the room and, and go out and do that work. And, you know, again, depending on the class, if, if they could do that collaboratively, that's always a, a great aspect as well. And I think students oftentimes feel isolated in these because they're not, they don't have the the common, um, not the common, but the sort of side conversations that might happen in a classroom or just seeing other students. So, so trying to work that in a little bit as well, um, I think is always helpful. So That's a great idea. Cause I know that in the classes that I teach, 99% of them would rather be face-to-face. They'd rather be in the classroom. And, uh, and I get that. I mean, I, I loved being in a room. I love working a room. I love the energy of a room. I bring energy to a room and, and for it, me. It also provides some structure as well. That's what I, I really liked about being you know, a student and, and knowing like I would go to this class and this class and between this, I would have this amount of time to study and it kind of planned out my days. And I think, you know, not having that is, is different these days and, and probably something that, that people are missing. You know, and that's a good point too, because as a faculty member, yeah, you're right. I'd, I'd be teaching from this, this moment in time to this moment in time. And I would, and I would build in travel or commute or walking or whatever it was. But now that I'm at home, like it's, it can, it has this danger of just all bleeding together so that my, my morning stuff bleeds into my afternoon stuff, which bleeds into my evening stuff. And I'll be honest, there've been days, (laughs) maybe even a week or two where I just lose track of days. Right. And if it, and if it wasn't for, you know, the Sunday, just everything shuts down day. I, I wouldn't know if today was Tuesday or Friday, but if I was face to face, man, I could tell you which hour it was without even wearing a watch. Yeah, no, I, I get that feeling. Yeah. And, and I like that, that phrase, everything bleeds into it, one another that, yeah, that absolutely. Like I, I, uh, I'm struggling with that by myself. So yeah. uh-huh. do you have any ideas that we can, we can think about to help our students in that trying to stop the bleeding? Cause Again, I take a poll of my, of my students and I would say the vast majority of them over 75% are taking three courses as well as working full-time and they have family at home. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't know um, what BC IT's approach to this, but like, I feel like in my experience, students like workloads actually went up in a lot of ways. Um, So, so um, it's just, you know, I think and sometimes when we when we are not used to teaching online, there's this tendency to overcompensate by saying, OK, we're going to do this many more activities in, in some ways and, and uh, times out by three to four classes. And, and it's a lot of stuff times out to the fact that students are dealing with their own covid issues as well. You know, and they may be having family or or other issues that that they're emotionally invested in or needing to deal with. And, and it becomes a very I I'd imagine it becomes a very overwhelming feeling in a lot of ways. So. Yeah. I don't think you're wrong there. And then throw in the mix of different cultural backgrounds and diversified backgrounds and, you know, economic status and all that other stuff. It just, yeah, it's quite easy for me being at home, you know, making what I make and doing what I do. Yeah. So, so in some ways, like, I think there's a, there's a big, um, 
you know, a big advantage to keeping things simple in some ways too, of, of, um, you know, really building in some simplicity. That doesn't mean you can't do more interesting things, but, but, uh, really just, just, uh, I don't know, like, I think a lot when I think about online courses, this idea of the sort of mag, and I, I don't know if I'm using this phrase, right, but the metacognitive load of students having to think about how they're going to learn. So, um, a good, a good course design lowers that, that barrier, lowers that threshold. So students know where they, they need to go at any particular moment to find the, the knowledge or the work that they should be doing. So, um, so we see complexes as you add technology into it. It might be, oh, students don't know where the assignment is because it's not in the, the, the same platform as where the lectures are. Um, so, but just, you know, a simple design of linking or a layout or something like that can really help lower that, that, that sort of stressing students out by making them think about what they need to be doing rather than just doing the work. Yeah, that's a really good point too, because I imagine that if, if the design uh, went into the course to make it really super easy for them to navigate and find like the searchability and findability of all the material that would cut down a lot of emails I get. Right. Cut, oh, and, and, you know, not that I get a ton compared to others. I, you know, I may get more, I may get a lot less, but I couldn't imagine having a class of say 150 people and even half of them emailing me saying, I can't find this. I can't find this. I can't find this. It, but so what you're saying makes a lot of sense because if I got to answer 75 emails all the same way. It's like, yeah, there's gotta be a different way to do this. Yeah. So, so in open education, the MOOCs often took a beating, but what was, um, interesting what was good about working on them is they really made you think about these. So you might have, you know, a thousand students taking a course and there, it was really in some ways a one-way transmission, but, but you had to make things very clear and very simple in some ways. And, and so definitely, I think those lessons, you know, we pulled back into to the online teaching context these days as well. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, what are you reading right now? What do you, what are you reading that's uh, making an impact on your work? Uh, good question. So, um, right now I've been, uh, we, we've spun up this sort of open course called the program for open scholarship and education. Um, so I've been reading some of the, so it was a joint collaboration with my unit, the teaching center and the, and the library. So I've been reading, I'm not super familiar with the open research aspects. Um, so I've been reading some of the, the resources that have been pulled together, uh, for that. As well, um, there is a great book, and I'm going to blank on the title. I think it's called Open at the Margins. Um, so I've been working through this. It's an open book. Um, I'm going to blank who the editors. I can pull it up, but it's uh, Crickle's Perspectives on Open Education. And the idea is they've taken, I want to say it's like 52 different blog posts or essays um, for marginalized people um, engaged in open education, sort of coming back to ask those questions, open for who or open, open for why, who gets to make these choices. And um, so I've been, I've been working my way through that on some just interesting, you know, critical, critical approaches to open, which is, is something I, I, I always enjoy reading. So. Yeah. So that, that's, that, those are good questions. So like open for who, how open is open, right? Um, who gets to decide yeah. if something should be open? Can you be? Can you make things open without licenses? Those those sorts of things. So. That must be some sticky questions when you get to faculty in certain in certain disciplines. I imagine. Yeah, I had a uh, yeah, just a fantastical interview, and and uh, we published it. Uh, I want to say this last spring. Time time blurs together, but with Daniel Heath Justice, who is a 
uh, instructor at UBC in the First Nations and Indigenous Health and, and really just some amazing, or sorry, First Nations and um, Indigenous uh, Languages, I think it is, and uh, Indigenous Studies. Sorry, I'm getting that wrong. First Nations and Indigenous Studies program. Um, and, you know, he, had a, he has a very different perspective on open um, as, you know, basically saying like, open can often be a form of colonization. So um, coming from an indigenous community, you know, if we're opening other people's resources, what right do we have to open those resources? And, and uh, yeah, just, you know, there, there are these really interesting perspectives and not that he's again, like he does fantastic open work and, and, and does this, but just saying, you know, we need to, we need to be listening to the community. And, And this is what I think it comes back to a lot of times. The critical views is that, that open can often be a technocratic approach. So we can say in some ways, you know, we just all content should be open and we should just put open licenses on everything. Um, but really it should be a community process. So whose knowledge are we sharing? Have we engaged with them? Have we talked with them? Have they been invited to be part of the process? Um, that, that piece I think can often be, I don't, I don't think it's always missed, but I think it's, it's uh, shifting per- perceptions these days in, in open access. That's interesting. That's interesting because so many times, like I'm, I'm, I'm new to the world, right? I mean, I've been in it for a couple of years, so I'm still, I can still consider myself a newbie, but that's an interesting perspective. So if I did all this research, all this background work on stuff that wasn't open per se, and I create this document or whatever, this piece of this archival document, whatever it is, does that give me the right to, to make it open if it's based on all the stuff that wasn't open and those are interesting questions. Yeah. Well, and, and to put it in like even a pedagogical perspective, we could say that with our students, like do what, you know, if students are creating this fantastic work and we want to make it open, what rights do we have to that? And, and I would just say, you know, we need to engage with our students as sort of that community process of saying like, here's why it's important to do it. Um, here's, you know, here's the, the risk um, that, that may come with doing sort of open work um, rather than just going and saying, we're going to do open work and, and uh, you know, you're all part of it without having that sort of back and forth. So I, I think anytime, I don't know, anytime you can, can engage with community, particularly around, you know, all sorts of communities out there. Oh, you know, um, sorry, I'm backing this up, but let me, let me go to another point. So, so yeah. a good, another good, good idea is I work a lot with instructors to do Wikipedia editing projects. Yeah. Um, so they'll ask their students to engage in Wikipedia editing. And this is an example where I often talk about like Wikipedia is kind of a community in itself. So it has rules and norms and it has processes. And it, if you know those sort of rules and norms and processes, you're going to have much more success with that. I um, mean, if you engage it with a community rather than just a, a editing process. Yeah, that's very and, cool. And I think anytime you're doing that with other people's, work or engaging around knowledge. Yeah. It, it really helps to, to do that engagement with community. Do you find people are pushing back on it a bit because they lose some kind of autonomy and control then? So, so like in your metaphor of saying like, you've done all this research and can you just make it open? Um, yeah, I, I think, I think collaboration and, and community engagement is always complex and it's always can be messy. Um, but I think it can be more successful in the long run and more sustainable in the long run. So, um, but it takes more work. Um, so definitely there, there is that pushback of like, Oh, let's just do this. And, and uh, you know, we can be there. We can get from, from where we are today to where our goal is without doing that very quickly. But if we have to do this sort of engagement or collaboration process, that's a much windier path. 
Yeah. And it's fraught with dangers too. And I remember reading a book by a guy named Hansen is his last name. And he, he made the statement that if, if, if you can't make collaboration work well, don't do it at all. Cause bad collaboration is worse than no collaboration. And I, and at first I'm like, what, <laughs> that doesn't, what? And then I thought through it a bit and I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense. Right. And cause it can be very damaging if it's not done correctly. Right. But, uh, certainly carries a ton of power when it's done well. Right. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of collaboration. I think it can, can help you, it can help make something stronger, but I think that like you, who you're collaborating with might have radically different goals. So you, you may no, no longer be going from where you are to your goal. You might have to shift your goals on in some ways. And if, if that doesn't happen, yeah, you can burn a lot of bridges. And um, if it's not done well. Yeah, for sure. Well, Will, we're coming to the end and uh, it's been an honor to have you on the show and to talk about all these great things. And um, I know that there's a ton of stuff in here that'll be super helpful for everybody. It's been a great time for me personally. Um, So I'd like to end with my fab five questions if you're ready. Sure. Okay, here we go. Uh, What's your favorite food? I am... um... If I lived on a desert island, I'd probably have to go with sushi. Uh, although I'm, I um, really like Mexican food quite a bit. I would love okay. to. Nice to, work. Um, have you ever had a piece of sushi options. that you regretted? <laughs> Very much. Um, yeah. There, there's a certain quality level that you don't want to dip down on sushi. Yeah. I've, I've dipped down a few times. So. Yeah. <laughs> Living in the danger zone. I love it. Uh, favorite movie or TV show, if you're watching anything right now? I have not been watching. I feel like I, I feel again with COVID everything blends together. So I'm trying to remember what, what um, we've been watching. I've, so I have a nine-year-old son and we've been watching a lot of the like movies I grew up with um, lately. So um, it's been a fun to go back and visit those. We watched the Goonies and, and oh. uh, flight of the navigator. Um, <laughs> nice. I think, nice. I think he, I think I probably appreciate them more than he does, but uh <laughs> I hear ET has been released again. That's, that's available. I'm sure that will be yeah on our list at some point. So. Nice, nice work. Uh, favorite band or genre of music. Ah, I like, I like all sorts of music. Um, I feel like, so this last year I did get a Spotify subscription and I feel like it's ruined me because it's like unlimited music and no longer like collecting. Um, probably my favorite band I've seen live was this, band called the red elvises which was this uh um it's kind of like uh russian surf music um and they they just put on a you know it's bar music they put on a really good good show um so i've seen them a few times when when they've come up north and when i've I've seen them down in the states as well but uh they're a fun band where are they from uh so the the they're originally from the ukraine but then they were from california so they got their start sort of busking in in uh santa monica area oh okay i'm gonna check them out that sounds fun but but yeah so what's your favorite go-to tech right now uh also a good question um yeah so so i feel i'll and i was complaining to this to somebody but i feel like technology has not been very interesting lately um so so in (laughs) and the teaching and learning why yeah exactly (laughs) In the ed tech sphere, I will forever um, always say that the only piece of technology that that people need is MediaWiki. So MediaWiki is the the wiki um, 
uh, software platform that's used on Wikipedia. Um, we run full courses on it. I love MediaWiki. It's just a a really interesting piece of technology that that um, what I really love. It was designed or, or Wikis in general were designed as a piece of technology built on trust. So the original um, the original guy who created the first Wiki um, basically had the his name was Ward Cunningham and he he created a, a piece of technology called the Wiki Wiki Web in 1995 and and basically had this idea that people who collaborate tend to trust one another. So why don't we build a platform rather than based on rules and roles of who can do what on the platform? We just make every everybody be able to do everything and, and we'll let that trust process sort of happen. And when you do that with students and, and instructors, it's a very leveling approach. You sure. can say anybody can come in and, and do this. So. Very cool. I'll have to check that out. Last question. Who's been the most influential person in your life over the last year? Yeah. Um, so yeah, probably, definitely my family, just because, uh, and I will say that has been a nice effect of COVID as we've had a lot more time together. Um, and again, like I, I, my partner is, is just absolutely fantastic. Um, in terms of what I would call work, I've also just been super impressed with my colleagues across the board. Um, you know, the transition, we basically, UBC transitioned over a weekend from normal classes to online classes and everybody just pulled together and. Um, just, just, uh, yeah, you know, just really inspiring in some ways. So. That's cool. That's cool. Very cool. Uh, thanks again, Will, for taking the time. Yeah, no, thank you show. so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed myself as well. And, and hopefully didn't do too many, uh, uhs and ahs and people were, are able to follow. So. Oh, it's all good. We're all good. Mm. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.